The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark. We remember Mark's an associate of the Apostle Peter. Peter was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. Mark wrote this Gospel based on Peter's account. So this is written within 30 to 40 years of the life of Jesus. That means two things. It's a claim of history. It's too early to be myth. It's too early to be legend. This is a claim of what happened in history. But given that it's a gospel, it's more than just a historical claim. It's an invitation. It's a call. You're supposed to respond to this somehow, even really participate in it. Three questions are at the heart of Mark's gospel. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he just a good teacher? You heard that question in the passage today. Is he more? Number two, second question, what did Jesus come to do? Why is he here? And number three, how should we respond to him? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? How should we respond to him? At this point in the gospel, chapter six, Mark is especially focusing on the aspect of response. How are you supposed to respond to who Jesus is? God is calling you for, uh, towards a response. And so let's just get that, you know, get those cards on the table. Let's try to be as clear as we can regarding what Mark is saying about response. So let's look at what Jesus said, Mark 1, 15. That's what Jesus said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And there's two things to do in response. What's the first one? Repent. And the second, believe in the gospel. So the gospel is the good news of who Jesus is. It's the promise of God's king, he's come. And so the response, two things, repent and believe, or we could say repentance and faith. So what's it mean to repent? You ever ask that question? What are, what are we talking about? Well, repentance has in it the idea of turning from, turn from. So you're walking in one direction, you're trusting in certain things, and you realize this is a wrong direction. I'm doing the wrong things. So I need to turn from these things. So we're turning from living for ourselves. We're turning from the things we make idols in our lives that we serve instead of God. We're turning from earning our own goodness before God. We're turning from being our own authority. We're turning from disobedience to God's word. That's part of repentance, turn from. And then belief, the other side of the coin, is turn to Faith, turn to, we want to turn to Jesus. Trust him to make us right with God. Trust him for forgiveness. Trust him as our king. Trust his love for us and turn to him in obedience. Repentance and faith, that's how we're to respond. And you can see it when people respond to Jesus like this, can't you? You can see it. No more is it just, yeah, I'm spiritual but not religious. No more is it just, I'm a good person. I kind of, no, no more. When you, when you repent and turn to Jesus, like, oh, I know my need, and Jesus is everything to me. I, I trust him. I want to live for him. And, and many of you in this room, you, you know that very well. That's when you, when you repented and trust Jesus, now you want to live for him. He, he's not just a sideline idea in your life anymore. He is life. We want to live for Jesus. Well, here's how our text this morning fits into that response. The question I think this whole text is answering is this, 
So what should you expect when you turn to Jesus and want to live for him? What should you expect when you repent and put your faith in Christ? What will that be like? What should we expect as we turn to Jesus and want to live for him? That's what we're looking at today. And so as we come to our text this morning, I know some of you might be a little worried, mainly because we looked at six verses last week, and that was an entire sermon. And then you're, you're counting up in your mind anxiously, and you realize, this is 37 verses. Why are we doing this? Matt, why are you doing this? Well, um, honestly, it's because of how Mark wrote the section. If, if you've been paying attention, you remember that Mark likes to use this uh, writing style we call sandwiching. Mark does this a lot. He'll start one story, and then before he finishes that story, he'll throw another story in the middle, and then he'll finish the first story. That's why we call it a sandwich. He does that a lot. Well, well, why does he do that? Well, because the two stories, they're meant to go together. And so you don't really understand the first story or the second story until you put the two stories together. So in our case, uh, what is it? Verse 7, we get a beginning of one story. Jesus descends his disciples out. And then in the middle of that story, seemingly out of nowhere, he throws in that crazy story about Herod and John the Baptist. And then at the end of that story, we finally finish the first story. Jesus' disciples comes back from their trip. And so we see, hey, to understand what's going on at the beginning and in the middle and at the end, we have to take it all in one picture because those stories together, they help us understand the truth Mark's trying to communicate. So for time's sake, we aren't going to cover every detail, okay? But we are going to try to see how all these things fit together. And I think, Lord willing, we'll see four things. Again, what are we talking about? What should you expect when you respond to Jesus with repentance and faith? Here's what we're going to see. Number one, Jesus will both receive you and send you. It's number one. Number two, often he will send you into suffering. Number three, no matter the difficulty, Jesus will satisfy you. And then number four, we'll finish with that, because of who he is and what he came to do. Okay, so if you're taking notes or just to repeat it again, number one, what should, you, what should you expect when you come to Jesus with repentance and faith? He will receive you and send you. Often he will send you into suffering. No matter the difficulty, he will satisfy you. All because of who he is and what he came to do. So here we go. First of all, verses 7 to 13, Jesus sends out his 12 apostles. Let's remember here just for a moment the difference between disciples and apostles. Have you ever wondered about that question? It's important to clarify that. What's the difference between disciples and apostles? Well, disciple, it just means a follower. You want to follow Jesus. You've repented and trusted in him, and so now you want to be close to him. You want to learn from him. You want to live for him. So who are disciples? Well, all, all Christians are disciples. We want to follow Jesus. But then 12 disciples are made into apostles. And the word apostle just means sent. And so some of Jesus' disciples, 12 of them, were given unique authority to represent Jesus and do what he's doing. So not every Christian is an apostle. 
In fact, if anyone today claims to be an apostle, be careful. They're claiming probably uh, a new authority or a fake authority or something outside of what we have in the Bible. So apostles are sent by Jesus with unique authority. They're to proclaim his message. And as we see in this passage, they're even enabled by him to do some of the same miracles he was doing because the miracles, as always, prove the message. Jesus makes incredible claims about himself. Why should we believe you? Well, look at these miracles. Oh, the disciples make incredible claims about Jesus being sent by Jesus. Why should we believe you? Look at these miracles. Oh, they prove the message. So now we're looking at these verses, 7 to 12. What do you see? Uh, let's see. Don't take anything except for a staff. No bread, no bag, no money. Just wear sandals and only one coat. So you're like, well, what are we supposed to do with this? And maybe some of you are like, you know what? I'm just going to leave my wallet here at church. I'm going to grab a buddy. We're going to get a stick. We're going to go crash somebody's living room and do some miracles. And if you're reading it that way, that's not how you're supposed to read this passage. You, you can understand, right? This is one of those passages that is deeply connected to its original context. We are not Jesus' apostles. We do not live in the first century. This is not our first missionary training trip. So there are a lot of ways we're disconnected from this. And yet, even though it's not to us, it is for us, right? We're supposed to learn something from it. We're supposed to see it. Number one, obviously, Jesus began to train his apostles for what they're going to be doing with their whole lives. And this is the first step in that. But more than that, there are some principles. So I just want to see a couple principles from this with you. Again, this is what to expect when you respond to Jesus with repentance and faith. Number one, Jesus will take you and he will send you. First thing about him taking you, none of these men, none of these apostles deserves to belong to Jesus. These, these gospels are so honest. These men so often are foolish. They are flawed. Some of them have really checkered pasts. They mess up. They will mess up again. They are not apostles because of the sterling resume they have of intellectual greatness or moral purity. They don't deserve to belong to Jesus. And here we realize, you know what? Maybe you feel that way. I don't deserve to belong to Jesus, but I need him. I just want to tell you, that's a, that's a great start because it's a sign the Holy Spirit is working in your life. All of a sudden, the facade, right? I'm fine on my own. I'm a good person. That starts to crack. That's good. That's God's mercy in your life. But then you might think, you know what? Why would Jesus, why would Jesus take me? And the answer is, he's kind and he's loving and he's merciful. And if you come to him with repentance and faith, he cannot resist it. And he will receive you. Isn't that great news? He'll receive you. I need that even today. I look at myself, I'm like, ugh. He will receive me through repentance and faith. What a gift. He's kind. He's good. He will receive you. But second thing, he will not just receive you. He will send you. He will send you. You don't just live for yourself anymore. You live for him. He will send you into your world to represent him in your life and with your words. So there's a million varieties to that, to that right? And, and the varieties are as, as varied as the people in this room. 
Where is he going to send you? Well, in, in one perspective, he might send you to somewhere particular. I, I know people. God's called me to be a missionary in a certain place, and they go. Marsha and I felt like God sent us out here to Southern California 18 years ago or something like that. He, he sends us. But, but more than that, wherever you go, when you leave church today, he's sending you. You don't just go for yourself anymore. And I don't care where you're going. Everywhere you go, you're now sent for Jesus. When you go to work, your work is for Jesus. You have to think about what that means, how you handle yourself, what you do, what you will do, what you won't do, but your work is for Jesus. Your family is for Jesus. And so you are to now represent him. You live for his glory. He's going to send you. That's the first thing. He'll receive you. He sends you. Just three more highlights. Maybe they'll be in a different sermon someday. But notice a couple more details. He sends you in community. The disciples started as a group of disciples following Jesus. They have, it's a family, kind of like, kind of like a local church. They're in community. And then when they go, they're sent to go. But even then, it's not like go by yourself and figure it out. They go two by two. It's the idea you always need community to live the Christian life. We, we need one another. So as you think about God sending you into the world, we want to lean into community. And in as far as we can, we want to include community. So, so maybe you were thinking about, for instance, offering hospitality to like an unbelieving friend or, or starting a, a Bible study or, or, or something you wanted to engage in, you felt like the Lord was sending you some way. Include brothers and sisters in Christ to do it with you. Do it in community. And you, we can imagine easily, right, the benefits of community. Number one, when it's difficult, you'll have encouragement. When it's difficult, you'll have encouragement. Number two, you go the wrong way, you'll have accountability. Number three, there'll be a variety of resources and talents instead of just your own strengths and weaknesses. So we're reminded again, you guys, you can't live the Christian life without commitment to a local church. And we need community. So he, sent, he receives you, he sends you, he sends you in community. He sends you with humble dependence on his provision. I'm not going to go into the details, but you saw all this stuff they're not allowed to take, right? That's not a good strategy for long-term missionary work. Don't take your wallet. No, don't do that. But for this trip, that's, they weren't, there's a lot of things they weren't taking. Why do you think he said, don't take those things? Because they needed to learn to trust him. They needed to learn that, that he was going to come through when it seemed like they didn't have the resources for it. They needed to learn humble dependence. Now, I've been a slow learner of that lesson over the years. But for those of you who've even been at this church for very long, haven't you seen God's provision for our church? Haven't you seen God's provision in your life? He's going to receive you. He's going to send you. And then it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, it's my work and it's on my tab I'll provide for it. He does his work. So he sends us in community. He sends us in humble dependence on his provision. Fourth, just for right now, we'll mention, he sends us with a call to integrity. And churches and Christians all over the world need to remember this. He sends us with a call to integrity. Number one, he wants integrity in our behavior. Aren't you sick of hearing people who claim Jesus 
live the opposite of what Jesus teaches. And it's so exasperating sometimes. And yet, then we have to look in the mirror and be like, sometimes that's me. He sends us with integrity. So one thing maybe you noticed about how he told the disciples once they had a house to provide for them, don't leave and go to a different house. It was a, a cultural norm back then. It's, it's hard for us to understand. It was a cultural norm back then to offer hospitality to a traveling speaker. High hospitality culture, cultural norm to bring them in. Don't just be switching houses, Jesus says. Why? Well, imagine you're going to speak, and at first, it's more of a poor family who says, we'll bring you in. Uh, we have a corner in the basement for you. Here's a sleeping bag and a pillow. Okay. And then you, you do your work, and the guy with the big house on the corner is like, oh, I really appreciated what you said. Why don't you come over to my place? There's a pool and a patio. You can have your own suite. And the traveling preacher's like, Jesus says, don't be doing that. You stay and you appreciate the hospitality offered because this is not about your personal gain. It's not about your comfort. And that's one way Jesus is calling his people to integrity, integrity of character. So we're thinking about that, right? As he sends us into the world, into our work, into our relationships, Lord, do I have integrity in how I'm living in these situations. Not only that, he calls for integrity in our words. Look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should, should what? The dirty R word. Repent. You know, it's easy in a way, right? And this is true, so don't get me wrong. It's easy in a way to be like, God loves you. And let me tell you, church, you repent and trust Jesus. You have no idea how much God loves you. But that's an easier sermon, isn't it? Now try this one on. Repent. Stop disobeying the one you call Lord. And then if we got detailed, well, the hair on your neck stands up and you feel offended, you feel confronted. At the heart of the Christian message is you need to repent. It's not the only aspect of the Christian message. We saw that, right? Turn from, turn to, look to Jesus, turn to him. But you got to turn from. And people, I, I don't know if you know this, people don't always like to hear that they're wrong and they need to turn. And so we need integrity in what we preach. Because the disciples don't get to make up what they preach based on how they think people are going to take it. It's not public opinion that's going to define the message. It's God's word. And so they need integrity in what they preach. And you see the importance of this. Because here they are going out to these cities. These cities believe God. They do. They're not atheists. And these disciples are saying, you need to repent and trust Jesus. And sometimes they're going to be rejected. And you see that weird part about the wipe the sand off your shoe? That's a sign of God's judgment. The Bible says that if we won't repent and trust the gospel, that our sins are on our own head and we will pay for them. If that's true, wouldn't it be incredibly unloving not to tell the truth? And if you have cancer and you go to the doctor, do you want the doctor not to tell you what's wrong with you because he's afraid he might hurt your feelings? Or do you need him to tell you the truth? 
We have to go with integrity in our words and preach what the Bible says. So as you can see, that could all be one sermon on its own, right? When you respond to Jesus with repentance and faith, he's going to receive you and send you. He's going to send you in community. He's going to send you with dependence on him, and he's sending you with integrity in your words and in your deeds. Now that takes us to the second part of the story. And we actually see in the second part of the story an example of someone who was sent with integrity. And who is that? It's John the Baptist. So what's going on here? Well, number one, the disciples, they're sent, and they're doing their their thing, and Jesus' name becomes known. Did you see that? His name becomes known. More and more people are hearing about Jesus, who he is, what he's doing, to where it even reaches King Herod. You could do your own study on the Herodian dynasty. They're like vassal kings, right, set up by Rome to rule different areas. So the Herod you read about in like the beginning of Luke, uh, and at the, at the context of Jesus' birth, that's this guy's father, okay? So this is Herod Antipas. You can look at the details later if you want. The point is, even this leader, this king, he's hearing about Jesus. And what's the question that's arising from the crowds, even from the king? It's a question that's all through Mark. The question is this, who is Jesus? But, but see this, they cannot deny the miracles, Even Herod cannot deny it. Who is this man? And then Herod gives you this weird response. Look at verse 16, Mark 6, 16. When Herod heard of it, he said, it's John whom I beheaded. He's been raised. What? That's so strange. Well, let's just remember some background. I think it's true in Mark, there's only two sections that aren't about Jesus, and they're about John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Jesus. He was sent by God to get people ready for Jesus, and he had integrity, and he spoke with integrity. Back in chapter 1 of Mark, we saw that John was arrested. Only now in chapter 6 do we get the rest of that story. So here we go. Are you ready? John's story. Verse 17, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Historical context, Herod Antipas, that's this guy. He was married to the daughter of the ruler of Nabatea. You can, you can look all this up. Even, it's even on Wikipedia. Herod visited his half-brother and became infatuated with his half-brother's wife. And she seems to be a bit of an opportunist. (laughs) And when she had the opportunity to live, uh, I guess, a normal rich life and become the matriarch of a palace, she took that opportunity. But she said to Herod, you got to divorce your first wife. And he was enough into her where he said, fine. And he did it. And Herod's a leader of Israel who's supposedly to uphold the worship of God and his behavior is not upholding God's call for anything, really, especially marriage. And what did John do? What did John do? You see, John, had, John was a notable and respected prophet, and he had a platform with Herod. And some of us need to hear this. John did not just talk about Herod. Don't we like to talk about leaders when they mess up? He didn't just talk about Herod. What did he do? 
He talked to Herod. He talked to Herod, which is by far more difficult and by far more loving. If you don't care about somebody, you just talk about them. Oh, they're wrong. God's judgment's coming. When you care about them, you talk to them. Because what is John giving Herod an opportunity to do? Repent. Repent. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, that was courageous of John. And he's going to pay for it. So here we go. Um, Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against John, wanted to put him to death, but she could not. You see in verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Oh, this is so interesting. It's so amazing. Here you see a man in what we could call the crisis of unbelief. Crisis. On the one hand, what what does Herod love? Well, he loves power. He loves his lust. He loves doing what Herod wants to do when Herod wants to do it. That's what he loves. He's great. He fears what people think, as we'll see in the rest of the story. He's influenced very much by Herodias. So he does put John in prison. He puts John in prison. A man loses his freedom. What did John do? He told him to repent. Told him to repent. He lived with integrity. But on the other hand, did you see this? Isn't, did, do you find this strange or are you like, I get it a little bit? Did you see this? Herod feared John. But it's not because John has an army or because John is a black belt. It's far deeper than that and in a way even scarier. He fears John, did you see it? Because he knows John is a righteous and holy man. So even Herod, the, he's a tyrant. He does whatever he wants. He has no moral fiber. And yet he knows there's a thing called holiness and righteousness and goodness and beauty and truth. And in a way, he's horribly drawn to it. Even still, he wants to hear John. He hears him gladly. Do you you see this draw in Herod's life? I actually, part of me, I want to actually hear God's word. There's something beautiful and true and righteous, and I know it's right. I know it's beautiful. I know it's true. And yet he's perplexed. And I think he's perplexed at the cost of repentance. What would it cost Herod to repent? Everything. Would cost everything. So he's stuck. Do you see? He he follows Herodias, he follows his own sin enough to put John in prison, and yet he won't let anyone touch John because he he wants to hear him. He knows there's something true and good and beautiful there. Throws a bone to his conscience by keeping John safe. This is the crisis of unbelief. Some of you may be in it right now. God might even be speaking to you right now. There's something you're practicing in your life, there's a way you're living or what you believe what you're doing, and you know, you know it's wrong. And you know there's a God, you know he's spoken, and part of you, you're drawn to it. But the, the intersection of those two roads looks, looks like too much for you. Well, here we see a man who makes his choice, and it's not a good one. 
Herodias has no crisis of unbelief. She's all unbelief. She's nursing a grudge and wants John dead. Text tells us that. She, again, why? She hates his message of repentance. And then the moment comes, verses 21 to 23, we can summarize it. Herod throws a rager for his birthday. His posse's there. I mean, this is a good old boys, right? This is a stag party. It's all the people who are in charge and they have money and they're drinking and they're eating. And grosser than anything, a lady comes to dance and the, the overtones of the language here is it's sensual. So she's dancing in front of all these drooling fellows Essentially, and then to take the grossness even further, it's his daughter-in-law. So it just reminds us of the great truth. There has never been a gentleman at a gentleman's club. <laughs> Brothers, it's always somebody's daughter. It's always somebody's daughter. But Herod is feeling himself, right? All his guys are around him. He's feeling himself. They're all excited. And this is a normal thing for ancient kings to do. Whatever you want, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. You know, he's kind of boasting. All his boys are like, yeah, or however this works. And then she runs to her mom. Her mom's been waiting for this. It's not normal that a noble woman's daughter is doing the dancing in front of these guys. Herodias is okay with this. And she goes and says, mom, what do I ask for? And you, you heard it. I want his head. It'd be a nice touch if you could put it on a platter. And now Herod is stuck because if you're in the crisis of unbelief, you can't stay there forever. You cannot stay there forever. A moment will come when the choice must be made. And you can hear Herod, he's sorrowful. He is so torn in half right now because on one hand, all his drooling friends are watching. He just made a big boisterous claim. And this woman he's infatuated with is making a demand. On the other hand, he knows John is right. And so he has to choose. And he could choose to gain his soul and lose the world. Or he can choose to gain the world, and lose his soul. And that's what he does. Cut his head off. By the way, just years from this moment, Herod won't have the world or his soul. Just as a reminder, the world's party, it's fun for a little bit, it doesn't last. That thing you would trade Jesus out for, it won't last. It's a limited time offer. Well, that takes us all the way back to 16, right? That was a long explanation of 16. Herod's hearing about Jesus. Who is this man? I think he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Why would he say that? Because his conscience is torturing him. He's a superstitious man, and his conscience is torturing him. He sold his soul for the world, and he is miserable. It's miserable. But now we ask, I mean, most of the time when I hear sermons on this text, it's, it's just Herod. But, but we have to ask, why did Mark throw this story of Herod and John the Baptist in right when Jesus sent out his disciples and then his disciples are going to come back? Why did he sandwich these stories together like this? Here's why. Because Jesus, when he sends you out, 
to live with integrity and speak with integrity. Often, he sends you out into suffering. Sometimes when you live and speak with integrity, it's your head that ends up on the platter. It happened to John. It's going to happen to Jesus. And in small ways, Lord willing, you're not going to get your head literally come off. But in, in some way, if you live with integrity for Jesus, it will happen to you. It will. And so thank God for the honesty of the Bible. Some preachers will give you the idea that if you just trust Jesus, everything in your life will be roses and lollipops, right? Because you'll just be rewarded for the virtue of your faith, and God will make just everything line up and be splendid. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I wouldn't trade Jesus out for anything. There are incredible benefits to belonging to Jesus, even right here and right now. And Jesus is good and kind. I love him. But he tells us we're going to suffer. Being sent by him sometimes is being sent into suffering. And so we count the cost, right? Is he worth it? Is he worth it? Well, Jesus receives us and sends us. Often he sends us into rejection. He's also going to satisfy us. And now we get into verses 30 and following. So the apostles returned to Jesus. They tell him all they had done and taught. And he said, come away by yourselves to, desolate, let, to a desolate place. Let's rest. You see the wisdom of Jesus' leadership. And these guys are exhausted from the work they're doing. And not only, they're, not only that, they're grieving the murder of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And so it's time for a break, right? Sometimes we need to take a break. Amen? Take a break. Rest in Jesus. But, and some of us need to hear this, sometimes when you feel like you need a break, what you actually need is not a break, but deeper rest in Jesus as you continue to work. You see this? The crowds come, and they swarm them again, and Jesus does not go, hey, everybody, we need some boundaries. Everybody, I'm sad and I'm tired. Come back later. It's striking to me that it's not what he does. After all of this grief, all of this work, what, what is Jesus' heart as he sees the crowd? Did you notice? Compassion. Compassion. You know where some power, just by the way, there's a lesson here. You know where some power can come when you're tired? Compassion. When you love the people, you're with and you're serving. You're thinking, I'm tired and I'm sad. I don't know if I can do this. You remember Jesus and his compassion, his compassion for you that can turn into new compassion for others, which will give you new strength to keep serving. Jesus has compassion on these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They need him. Just another thing to notice, what's his response when he's full of compassion? Verse 34. He had compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. One of the most loving things Jesus can ever do for you is teach you about who he is, which is why we are so big into teaching and preaching the Bible, because the most compassionate thing we can do is teach one another about Jesus from his word. This is love that God gives us. He teaches them, but... There's a, there's a big lesson, especially he wants his disciples to see. And so you, you've probably heard the story. Thousands and thousands of people are here. 
thousands of people, and the disciples say, it's getting late. People are going to want some dinner. They probably didn't have breakfast or lunch, maybe lunch. They're going to want some dinner. And then Jesus seems, he says something that must have just seemed crazy to them. Did you see verse 37? You give them something to eat. He might as well tell you to fly. Or what are you talking about? That's impossible. And then he says, what do you have? And their answer, and it shows you this is eyewitness testimony. Who would remember this? We have five chunks of bread and two fish, which just in the equation here, okay, that's not enough. It's not enough. What do you have? Just above nothing. Here's nothing. Here's what I have. And this is a great parable for how I feel sometimes, for how you're going to feel when Jesus sends you. What do you have to offer? And you'll be like, well, I'm still breathing. Just above nothing. And you know what Jesus says to you? I can work with that. That's what this is for, friends. When you feel like you can't do it anymore, you have just above nothing. Jesus says, I can work with that. I can do something with that. And so here's how it goes. He sits them all down in groups. He takes the just above nothing that they have, prays for it. And then, I mean, this must have just blown your mind. I, I wish I could watch it. He starts putting them into baskets. And if you're there, you'd be like, There's more. He just keeps going. And you know, he's doing what he's always been doing. Guess who invented like metamorphosis and the wheat plant? Jesus made that. And guess who made the fish to swim in the sea? Jesus made that. And he's just skipping some steps right here. <laughs> and he's filling it up. And this is a historical claim. This is not myth. This is not legend. He fed the entire crowd on the hill. And then when you see how the story ends, it says they all ate and were satisfied. That's, that's something a little different. They all had enough. When they didn't have nearly close to enough, they all had more than enough. Moreover, uh, how many tribes of Israel were there in the wilderness? 12. How many disciples are there that Jesus sent out? 12. How many baskets were left over? 12. More than enough deeply satisfying, all that you need. And so now the disciples are really learning something, and we need to learn it too. Who is Jesus? He's not just a prophet that wants to give you advice. He's not a judge that just condemns you. He's the son of God who came to bring you to himself. He receives you, and he sends you, and sometimes he sends you into hard times and hard places, but even as he does that, he will provide and satisfy for you, provide for you and satisfy you. He will. He's enough. As you keep coming to him in repentance and faith, he's enough. As we conclude our time here, this meal, I'm sure, is meant to remind us of another one. It's later in Mark 14. Anytime Jesus is breaking bread, something deep is going on. 
Look at Mark 14, 22. This is, this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. This is the story of the Lord's Supper, right? They were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Is that enough? He said, he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and, and they drank of it, and he said, this is the blood of my covenant. And so this whole story points us to the way Jesus truly receives us and satisfies us. Where do we find satisfaction for our hearts? It's right there at the cross. It's right there at the cross. This is what we always need to treasure and remember, especially when we feel like we're not enough and we don't have enough. Jesus is the Christ. He's God's promised king. He came to take on flesh and live a perfect life that you couldn't and didn't do. He did it to make you right with God. He died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, all of them, so that we could be totally forgiven. He rose from the dead in victory. He reigns now. He's praying for us. In him, we are adopted. We are loved. And there's a future for us that is good. We have a hope of resurrection, eternal life with him. It's him and his cross that satisfy the hungry heart. And it's there, as you see, you're worse than you thought he had to die for you, but you're more loved than, ever, than you ever dreamed. He's willing to die for you. There you see his love, and that's the place that moves your heart to come to him in repentance and faith. How should we respond to Jesus? Well, here's who he is. He's the son of God. What did he came to do? To die on the cross to win you for himself. How should we respond? Repentance and faith. Turn from anything in his way. Turn to him. And what can you expect as you do that? He will receive you and send you. He will often send you into suffering. But even as he does that, he will satisfy you. Let's pray. Jesus, there is no one like you who is so strong and so kind, so powerful and so humble. And so we are drawn to come to you. So we want to pray for anyone who's not yet a Christian that today they would say, oh, Jesus, I'm coming. Will you take me? And they would hear, hear you say, yes. In fact, I'm the reason you came. I've been after you that they would find joy in belonging to you. And Lord, you feel us all with zeal to be sent by you for your sake wherever we go, that we would live for you with integrity in word and deed. Lord, that we would trust you when suffering comes, even chaotic, horrible suffering, and that we would find that you satisfy because of who you are, because of what you've done for us. Lord, put this in our hearts. Change our lives with it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.